Welcome to the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. On this episode, we chat with Steven Galanis, co-founder and CEO of Cameo. Cameo is a video sharing platform that allows celebrities such as Snoop Dogg, Caitlyn Jenner, Carol Baskin, and over 40,000 others send personalized messages to fans such as birthday shoutouts, congratulations, and more. The company has seen a meteoric rise since launching in 2017, so we were excited to sit down with Steven to see what it's all about. We talk about everything from Steven's upbringing and various entrepreneurial ventures leading up to Cameo, his biggest takeaways from his experience working at LinkedIn, the skills he gained early in his career that helped his development as a leader, his timely advice for entrepreneurs, and what sparked the idea that ultimately became Cameo. Steven also shares how they were able to acquire top talent early on, the importance of founder market fit, the innovative pricing model that allows celebrities to capitalize on their fame while providing value for their users, and how he sees the ever-changing social media landscape as a farm system for Cameo. We started off the conversation by taking it all the way back to Steven's early days growing up in Chicago. Cool. I'm, uh, I'm from Chicago. I'm from the North Shore of Chicago, a town called Glenview, Illinois. Um, I grew up uh, in a Greek American family, so you know my my dad's actually from Sparta, uh, like you know actually from Sparta. So I always grew up, um, you know, hearing about you know the great things that you know my ancestors did, and you know how you know Greeks were basically better and faster and smarter than than everybody else in every way. So I think it gave you. A, you know, probably irrational confidence early in life. Um, I played a lot of sports. Um, I was a hockey player, football player, baseball player, soccer player, um, you know, played through college. Uh, also, you know, academically, I was, um, you know, I was a policy debater. I did, uh, I was class president. So I was kind of that person that just did um, everything, which was, a, you know, a lot of fun. Um, ended up going to Duke after, that which you know was just a place where i found there were a lot of people that were you know extremely talented in a lot of different facets but it's not the most it's not the most intellectual place but it's some place where like everyone you meet is like smart and has a personality and and things like that so that was a really good fit um for me and uh and then after that i was an options trader uh for my first five years out of college um, you're coming from Chicago. That's kind of the king of industry. If you grow up in LA, you probably want to be a movie producer. If you grow up in, uh, you know, in New York, you want to work on Wall Street. But if you're you grew up in Chicago, like you want to be an options trader, and um, I did that, and I was really fortunate to to kind of get you know a, a, a chance to cut my teeth in the pits of the Chicago Board of Trade, and um, that was a, a a really you know exciting place for me to to spend the early years of my career. Was that was that something that you like an options trader? Was that something you wanted to be from like a young kid? Like, was it something that was forced upon you, or you you know you had family members doing it, and you were like, I want to do that, or did you sort of figure that out once you got to college? My family had always been very big in the market. My grandfather was a stock trader, and uh, actually had a photography studio that's been around since 1945. It's the oldest continuing continuously run studio in Chicagoland. Um, you know, my other uncle, uh, was a, a movie producer and still is. Um, but you know, the stock market was just something like I grew up in a house where, you know, CNBC was on the TV every single day. Uh, you know, my grandfather, I remember even before like CNBC was a thing, he had this little 
device before cell phones that was just like an automated stock ticker. So I just grew up fascinated by the markets. And, you know, when I thought of the, the, the parents of, of my friends who were most successful, who had the big houses on Lake Geneva, which is like the Chicago equivalent to the Hamptons, uh, they were basically all options traders. They were all, uh, they'd all made their, their money at the Chicago Board of Trade. So I think subconsciously that always felt like a place where, you know, you could go in as, as someone like, you know, smart and scrappy and like, you're only going to be held back by, you know, kind of your own ability. And, um, and that, you know, I think in Chicago, uh, that's what people grow up wanting to do. So I know you mentioned you went to Duke, you know, why'd you choose Duke? What did you study? Uh, what was that whole experience like for you? Yeah, I, uh, it's kind of funny how I ended up at Duke. I was actually supposed to go to Tulane to play football and I'd signed a letter of intent. And then uh, Hurricane Katrina ended up happening my senior year of high school. So at that point, there was no, like, we didn't know if New Orleans as a city would even exist. And, and then, you know, for the first time I started thinking about, well, where would I want to just go as a student? And, you know, I love sports. I love academics. I, you know, I'm from, you know, in the Chicagoland area, you're surrounded by all the Big Ten schools. So the Michigans, the Wisconsin's, the Ohio States of the world. And there's just so much pride in Chicago. You go to my neighborhood I grew up and you know, the Michigan flags are hanging, the Notre Dame flags are hanging. But my mom, who is from Chicago, went to Arizona State. And her one rule for me, she's like, I want you to go to another region and kind of like learn a different part of the country. So for me, it was, it really kind of came down to at the end, finding a school that was, you know, full of like smart people that had a lot of school spirit that had like, you know, A plus sports and just like great campus life. So for me, it was like Duke and USC were kind of the two at the end. And um, I went to, and I'm, I love college football. And this is at like the peak of USC's reign, you know, Matt Liner, uh, Reggie Bush, like, you know, as a somebody that loved football as much as me, that was like the place to go. And I ended up going down to to Durham um, to go visit a friend who was the captain of the football team at Duke at the time. And they had lost they had lost twenty four games in a row. I think it was like a an NCAA record. Um, so like they were the shittiest team in the country. And the weekend that I went, they beat VMI. It was the first win in like two years. You know, it was a beautiful summer day in North Carolina. And like, I was just hooked. I knew that's where I was going to go to school from the second uh, I stepped on. And, um, you know, one of the really cool things that happened to me there was actually this guy that I met, Zach Moritas, who today is the founder of a company called Teamworks, uh, which is, um, you know, a Series C company uh, out of Durham. Um, Zach and I, you know, we're really close. We grew up together. Our families are really, are really close. We're both Spartans. We're both Greek from the same neighborhood in, in Glenview, Illinois. And I was the freshman. He was the senior uh, captain of the football team. And this was the days when Facebook was only for people with, with the .edu address. So Zach and I started a business called Spartan Entertainment where we basically, um, in a world where the bars couldn't promote themselves, we started a Facebook group that ended up having 17,000 college students in it four years later. And we ended up like running all the nightlife at Duke University. So this was my first like real entrepreneurial hustle. I was a history major, but anybody that knows me like knows that I majored in business, even though Duke doesn't have a business school. And, um, and, you know, I don't think it's surprised to anybody that went to Duke during that era that Zach and I are both running, you know, pretty big tech companies at this point. You know, we, 
we honed our chops as CEOs. Um, you know, at that point, we learned you know what it's like to be an owner, like what it's like to to you know do everything from you know at the early days, you know, you're, you're counting money, you know, your other people are at your parties, drinking, having a great time, but like, you know, you were there for work. It wasn't, it wasn't for play. And, um, and I, I think that was a pretty formative experience for, for both of us. And so I'm, I'm assuming this is like mid to late two thousands, right. Uh, going to what, well, when you're in college, exactly. I was, I was 2006. So, I mean, I literally remember the days where, uh, like I, I remember getting into University of Illinois because they were on rolling admissions and like everyone wanted to be on Facebook so bad that people would put down deposits to get you know the, the .edu address so you could get on Facebook. So my I was literally the first grade of, of person who was on Facebook for you know my whole four years. Hmm. And and you know looking back at it, that was a really powerful thing because you know every single person that I met got into this network and. You know, I think that was my first, um, the first time where I realized like network effect businesses and what those could be. And and as we built this this business up, Spartan Entertainment, you know, it started with throwing Wednesday night beer pong at a bar, but it ended up being a college moving business. We had a t-shirt company, we had a DJ company, we had an event uh, venue rental company, we were you know doing limos, like all types of stuff. So we realized that if you aggregate enough people and you provide value to them consistently, you can always you don't just have to sell the one product. You can keep selling other things to them. And I think that's a value that I've taken, you know, in a lesson I've taken with me to Cameo. Mm. And and did you like set out to start a business from the beginning? Like when you were even prior to college, did you see yourself as a business owner or entrepreneur or was it something that was more like opportunistic? You saw an opportunity. You're like, hey, we could take advantage of this and we wanted ourselves. So why not just put it out there? Like what was what was your approach? I believe entrepreneurs are born, not made. I think there's 3% of people on earth who are just born to be entrepreneurs. Like they can go be employees, but they're never going to be the best employees. You know, they ultimately have to be running the show. They have to be uh, not only parts of winning teams, but they need to be the reason why they win. And I was always wired like that. Um, you know, I was an entrepreneur through, you know, through college. And then, you know, for me, honestly, the first seven years of my career were pretty tough. Like, you're going from like being, you know, a boss and, and running this like, you know, pretty big business in college where I was making, you know, over six figures a year in cash, like as a college student, to suddenly like going to Chicago and being a clerk at the Board of Trade for 35 grand a year, you know, getting people like coffee, like screwing up their lunch orders. And like the hardest thing I had to do is pick which movie we were going to watch. You know, so like that, I think for entrepreneurs is really, is really tough. And, you know, the advice that I'd give is like, Hey, even if you don't have like the best idea, if you're an entrepreneur, just keep hustling because you're going to learn so much. And there's probably seven years of my professional career that I would take back if I could, because you know this is my first this is my first rodeo in the tech space. But you know, I wish this was probably my second or third company by now. But just to sorry, but just to play like sort of devil's advocate there, because I, I totally agree with you. You know, like if if it's something that you innately are and you want to you know, business owner, entrepreneur, then just go out there and put yourself out there and, and get it done and you'll build experience along the way. But also I think there's something to be said in a lot of 
cases where you know you could get this professional experience in the real world that can help you become a better entrepreneur and actually increase your likelihood of success because you've seen it you kind of know how an organization is run because it's not just about starting a business at some point you have to raise money you have to start uh, managing people and if you don't have that experience it might take a little bit longer for you um, to gain those skills so I guess for you did you see your professional career as something that helped you become a better entrepreneur when you started Cameo? Or was it like, if you could go back, you would have rather just ran your own businesses and learned that way? I'd rather go back and absolutely, with one exception. Uh, I did have two years at LinkedIn right before. And to me, that was really formative. While I had had other businesses that were tech enabled, LinkedIn gave me like this opportunity to actually learn about, you know, what is it like to work at a technology company? Why is culture important? Why is you know, recruiting important? Um, so LinkedIn was the formative experience of my professional career. You know, my point is like I wasn't doing anything at LinkedIn that like changed the world. I always joke, you know, Jeff Weiner and Mike Gamson from LinkedIn are two of our early investors, and I always joke that the market cap of the company, you know, declined pretty, you know, pretty badly from the time I joined. I think when I joined, the stock price was at two nineteen, and you know, we ended up getting sold for one hundred ninety six bucks two years later. So I always joke that I was like a net negative, you know, uh, to LinkedIn. But you know, what I learned a lot about was culture um, at LinkedIn. Jeff Weiner would get on stage every single all hands, and he would say, "Talent is our number one priority." And like, I, I didn't really understand that as an athlete, I got that you won by having the best players and getting them to work together. Right. But I think like on a business perspective, it wasn't something I thought about uh, coming up as a trader at the Chicago Board of Trade. I'd never worked with any women before. Um, you know, the pit was 300 men and you know, the only women that worked at, it, at my trading firm were basically working in HR or they were back office clerks. So, you know, going to LinkedIn and hearing people like Mike Gamson talking about, hey, at the senior levels of, of LinkedIn, 15% of our director level higher people are women, you know, but uh, we need to make that 50-50 in the next, you know, three years. Like hearing people talk about things like that, you know, diverse teams win. These were just ideas I was not exposed to in the pit. And, um, and I'm thankful. I'm really thankful I had that stop in my career. But that said, like, I think I could have also, you know, my, my years trading, like maybe one year of that was great, but like, I think four of them, I, I, I should have just been doing, you know, some startup and, and you learn so much more. I joke all the time, like you learn more, you know, in your first year of running a startup, even before you have employees or raise money than you probably did in, you know, all of college. So, you know, to me, there's no, there's no, nothing replaces just doing it. Steven, I'd love to touch on uh, the culture bit when we, you know, transition into Cameo and just kind of delve deeper there. But, you know, you talk about this seven years of hustle and, you know, just kind of going all over the place, doing a bunch of different things. Was that ever stressful? I mean, did it cause you anxiety? Did you feel like you had no idea what your future was going to look like? Or is that something that you enjoyed? You know, I think I've been in that position. I know Pat's been in that position. A lot of our friends have been in that position where early on in their careers, that first, you know, five to 10 years, you're like, I don't know what the rest of my life is going to look like. You know, I want to start a family. I want to buy a house, have this and that, but I'm nowhere near there. So what was your mentality? Like, I'm curious because I know a lot of our listeners will want to hear that and maybe even, you know, learn something from it. Look, I, I have a funny story about that. I remember in 2016, I was at a birthday party 
And uh, a friend of mine from high school named Jesse Shaman, who I hadn't seen in about five years, came up and I'm working at LinkedIn. I got a great job. I'm making a lot of money. Like outwardly, it seems, you know, like anybody objectively would say, like, I was pretty successful at that point. And uh, Jesse goes up to me and I hadn't seen her since high school. She basically goes, Stephen, like, I'm so disappointed in what you've become, right? Like I had so much higher expectations for you. I thought you were going to be the president of the United States one day. And basically like, you know, you're a bum, you're working at LinkedIn, you know? And like, that was just one of those things where it's like, well, you know, first off, it's like, well, screw you, Jesse. Like, you know, I, I like what I'm doing, like all that type of stuff. But, you know, on, on reflection, I remember seeing her a couple of years you know, later and, you know, Cameo starts you know, rocking and things are going well. And then she's like, you know what? Hey, I'm really proud of you. Like you're, you're finally doing what, what we all thought you were going to do. So I, I do think that there's, there's certainly something there. Um, there. Um, I also think too, as I look back to my time trading or I look back to my time at LinkedIn, I was someone that had like side hustles that were always in sports and entertainment. When I was a clerk, I was running like a sports book, you know, out of the pits of the Chicago Board of Trade. Um, I started a film investment fund and I produced, you know, two television shows and like three or four movies, raising money from guys in the pit. Like I, you know, I would I would win my fantasy football leagues all the time. You know, I was, you know, had you know tickets to all the games. So like I found myself like when I should be concentrating on, you know, on what the you know SPX, you know, trades were doing, like I just found myself like, you know, caring about sports. And I do think there's certainly something to you know, making sure that you find whatever whatever you try to get into, it needs to be something that you actually love doing. Not that you just think it's a big idea because, you know, it's going to be, you're going to probably have to work for free for a couple of years and, and, and you better like be obsessed with the field that you're in. Otherwise, like somebody's going to have more passion for it. And, you know, even if you're working equally as hard, they'll eventually beat you. I think one of the biggest uh, areas of anxiety that um, early entrepreneurs face, and this was the case with me, it still is the case with me, is it's sort of like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll take the leap, I'll take the risk, I'm, I'm willing to pursue this idea and, and see it through. But it's kind of like, all right, just in case it doesn't work out, what are my options? Like, what are my transferable skills? You know, a lot of people are, te- you know, technologically savvy, like they could code and they could engineer from a young age some people are just good at talking to people in sales it sounds like you were more like in a sales position at linkedin yeah. and that was kind of like your strong suit but like i think that's 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 where it comes from so i guess in terms of like your early career like what were some of the skills that you got that you think helped you you know when you when you actually started cameo and started you know building this business i think um learning like actually learning sales at linkedin was really uh, great. I'm somebody that always had good natural sales skills, but just like learning about, you know, prospecting and how to pipeline and all that type of stuff. And look, I, I think that I have like really good natural skills at that, but I was not going to be like a club level performer, you know, at, at LinkedIn because I, I, it just turns out like I'm, I'm better at a different type of sale. Like, you know, in another world, like I probably could have been a college football coach and you know, I would have been pretty good in the living room, like, you know, getting some, you know, somebody's mother to say like, hey, you should come play football for, you know, Coach Galanis over there. And and at the end of the day, like that, um, I think those were, were some of the skills that I, I really learned. Uh, the big one in trading um, was really like the value of two things. I remember my very first day of work trading and uh, and the, you know, the, the head of the firm pulled everybody in of the new hires 
And he's like, look, you guys are all new. You're going to screw up a lot of things. You're going to lose us a lot of money. That's fine. Like, there's only two rules that you have to go by. Number one, like, if you lie about anything, like, we will fire you. Like, it doesn't matter how small the lie is. Because if you lie about big, if you lie about little things, you'll lie about big things. And then secondly, like, you know, I don't care what you do outside of work, but you need to be there for the opening bell every day. Like, you know, it doesn't take any skill to just show up and be on time. And I think like having those lessons and and having integrity drilled in really early in my career and, you know, and having like reliability drilled in uh, early in my career, those were two important lessons that, um, you know, I I think in many ways are just, I think they're kind of lost a little bit on this like younger, you know, younger generation. Um, You know, right now, if like, like when I was training, we had to be there at five fifteen every single day, right? And like, you know, we were staying until seven o'clock. And now, you know, if you do that, if I did that to like my sales team, you know, they're writing a book about that someday, or there's some article about, you know, how we're a toxic startup culture. So there's just so many things that I think taught foundational skills that you know you just can't really do in 2020. And and um, and you know, that's something that I think like a lot of people are having to deal with right now. So, Stephen, you know, you talk about your friend kind of telling you that, you know, he's disappointed that you haven't turned out to be this, you know, incredible human being, you know, early on in your career, even though you're still a young dude in your 20s. Um, you know, wh- what does that make you do? I mean, do you go back to the drawing board and say, OK, you know, you know, I had a business in college. I was doing well. You know, I want to be president of the United States. I've always been a leader. Here I am, you know, selling somebody else's, you know, product, you know, albeit I love LinkedIn. You should probably get a LinkedIn picture, you know, considering, you know, you work there. Just kidding. Uh, but wh- where did the idea come from for uh, for Cami or or did it or, you know, what were you doing? Because clearly you had realized that you need to do something else. So uh, I do have a LinkedIn picture. We like we must be the third connection or something. Uh, it's definitely there. I used to have to like teach bankers how to put pictures. So my picture is there for sure. Uh, secondly, um, I, I think that I knew I wanted at, by that point, I knew I wanted to start something, but I think, you know, kind of like, uh, like I remember Barry Bonds, for example, when he, you know, had his like 73 home run season, there was some crazy stat where he like swung and missed at five pitches the whole year. I think when you get to a certain point in your career, and this is why I encourage young entrepreneurs to take more risks earlier. Like by the time you're like, I don't know, I think I was 28 years old when I started Cameo, 29 years old. You know, you're making, you're used to making a certain amount of money. Like you, you're on a path, like you can have a career if you want to continue going with it. I think it gets harder and harder and harder in many ways to like, you know, be entrepreneurial and take those risks. So for me, it was like, I knew I wanted to start a company, but it had to be like the right idea. And when we had the idea for Cameo, I remember coming back and telling all my coworkers at LinkedIn about it. And everybody right away thought it was a great idea. And, you know, for the next three months for my last quarter at LinkedIn, I was probably the worst person at the whole company, right? Like I, you know, somebody would call, like my co-founder Martin would call me with the product idea and like, I'd miss a customer call. Like, you know, he would say like, you need to come out to Seattle tomorrow so we could try to sign a bunch of Seahawks up and like, I would just like leave and get on a plane. It's like my last quarter at LinkedIn. I, I tell Jeff Wiener this. I was probably the worst person at the whole company. Um, but I, I realized that the second I had the idea, like the brain chemistry started changing. And like, even though LinkedIn was paying the bills, like Cameo was where my heart was, my mind was, or the idea that would 
become Cameo because we hadn't sold one yet. And for me, the you know that that big like inflection point and kind of my river of of entrepreneurship happened when um, I was on in Nicaragua with a bunch of uh, people that I worked in LinkedIn with, and they would give you from Christmas break through the first week of the year off. And about ten of us went down to Nicaragua, and I remember sitting in a hot tub, and uh, and one of the guys that I worked with out of the New York office goes, Stephen, this idea is too big, like, and and it feels like you should be doing this. If somebody else builds this company and becomes a billionaire and you're still at LinkedIn, you know, collecting your salary and getting free lunch, could you live with yourself? And nobody had asked me that question yet, but it was so obvious that the answer was no, that I, I literally never went back. You know, I, I wrote the next play letter. It's on my, if you go to my LinkedIn, uh, you can actually like read the letter I wrote to my team in real time. And I was kind of spelling out this vision of the marketplace that would become Cameo. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it's 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 crazy to understand that, like probably six of the people that worked, you know, within earshot of me at LinkedIn are now at Cameo, you know, in mm. key roles. And because all those people, they, they just got it. They knew that I was going to be passionate about it. And, and a lot of them have, have now left to come work with me on it full time. But Stephen, where like how did the idea come about? Like, where did you get the idea for uh, whatever Cameo was early on? Yeah, we had the idea for Cameo at my grandmother's funeral of all places. My co-founder, Martin, was an NFL agent at the time, and he had a player named Cassius Marsh who played for the Seahawks, uh, who he was repping, and he could not find him any type of endorsement deal. And, you know, he was telling me about this problem. I'm driving him home to the airport from the funeral. He flew in from L.A. for the day, and he pulled out his phone, and he showed me what we now today call the first Cameo. And in the video, Martin got Cassius Marsh to congratulate his buddy, Brandon, who is very high up in Nike's marketing department. I'm becoming a father for the first time. And Brandon loves the Seahawks. And there's a message, Cassius wearing no shirt. He's driving in Southern California. And he goes, hey, Brandon, it's Cassius Marsh from the Seahawks. Heard about your son, Maverick. If he gets your athletic ability, he'll be played for the Seahawks one day. Go Hawks. And Martin shows me this video and like immediately, like I had the Eureka moment and it's like, dude, that's awesome. Like we should sell those. And as someone that went to Duke, who is an athlete there, who has a lot of buddies in the NBA and, and you know, knew like rappers and all these different things, I could understand like why that was cool. And, and it was like, this is the new autograph. You know, when you see somebody in person, you want to take a picture with them. But like, here's how you get that, that selfie experience with someone without meeting them in real life. And, and, you know, that was the, you know, immediately I'm like, I think there would be insatiable demand for this. The only question is, can we get talent to do this repeatedly? And, um, and that's kind of how we had the idea. Mm. How deep did you think about the business aspect of it? Right? Like, uh, you know, obviously it's like this cool idea, like people are, you know, gonna, gonna enjoy it. And obviously like everyone likes to, to hear from their favorite celebrities, especially if it's for them personalized, that's, that's awesome. But like, how did you, how did you think about the business aspect of it and how that would work? Did you do some like deep analysis on that or was it like, we'll figure it out along the way? No, I think we just knew, like I, I saw it, I'm like, this should exist. And then, you know, any, like there's a lot that's been written about, you know, kind of cameos viral loop and like, how the business model, like what's brilliant about it, like all that type of stuff. All I knew is like this should exist and people would want it. So like I started with that. I'm like, this is something that people would want. Now it's just a math problem. It's like, 
what price would people be willing to do this for? And how do we build a product that's so fun that talent would do it for free, but they get paid? Um, you know, so I have two co-founders. One is Martin, as I mentioned, he's a movie producer and NFL agent. But my other co-founder, Devin, um, you know, I think it's even more interesting when it comes to like why cameos work. Like there's a lot written about, you know, me and Martin's like Hollywood connections. But Devin was one of the original Vine stars. And, you know, he's somebody that uh, in the early days of Vine quit his job at Microsoft. Him and his best friend traveled the world, kind of were like the original travel influencers. Devin had over a billion loops on Vine and his best friend, Cody Ko, had 3.6 billion loops on Vine. So these guys like became world famous. But then when they got back to the U.S., they were never able to monetize because Vine never built that in. So I started learning about this new class of people that were more famous than they were rich. And, you know, that felt like it was going to be a problem and it felt like it was a growing problem. You know, keep in mind, like musically it was just a bunch of 15 year old girls you know, doing you know, lip syncing at the time. But like Instagram and YouTube and some of these platforms were starting to create new stars. And Netflix was just getting into original content. But like that would turn into the Carol Baskins and the Jerry Harris's of the world. So we have this belief that like content was exponentially increasing. And as content increased, there were just going to be more stars made, period. Right. So there are more famous people than ever before. And with more famous people, the gap between fame and monetization was going to be wider than ever. So we just felt like this was a problem that was going to grow very quickly, you know, just as these other platforms were rising. And, um, and the other thing we always liked about the business was, you know, in a marketplace business, you always have to decide, like, do you go for the supply side or the demand side first, the chicken or the egg question. We had really high conviction that if we got the supply on, we could be get demand because all of our supplier famous. They had followings on social. If they joined the site, they could send a tweet out. They could send an Instagram post out and they could turn their followers into our customers for free. So we always felt like we had that that viral loop going, but it was always going to be about could we get talent to actually do this? Because in 2016, when we founded the company, this is a very taboo idea. You know, that's a that's a great point. It's something that, you know, Pat and I have discussed, too, in terms of, you know, that chicken or egg situation that you described. You start off with your customers. You start off with, you know, the talent in this case on Cameo. You know, why did you think that if you told the, you know, athletes, actresses, whoever, I mean, who, who are now those people, the talent on Cameo, that they couldn't just go ahead and do this themselves by having their agents or business managers setting up a website saying, you know, contact me for 15 minutes or whatever and you know this is the payment fee and i'll get on a call with you right like they could do that themselves in my opinion i'm just playing devil's advocate here why do you think that they wouldn't do that uh, well two things number one we started with our friends right so we started solving a problem for our friends so that all the first talent on cameo were people we knew and we knew that they weren't going to be able to like build their own website like that just wasn't going to happen and and honestly uh the other thought too was that the network effect of being on a platform with multiple people from multiple, you know, um, real housewives and NFL players and comedians and television stars. We just always felt that like if we could aggregate more and more interesting, diverse networks, the flywheel of them promoting and exposing people to other people on the platform, like that would become valuable. And so was that what it was? Was it like a domino effect? Like you started with your friends and at some point, you know, you started approaching people outside of your network, your personal network, and they were pretty receptive to it. Like, what was that conversation like with like those, those first few people that were not within your immediate, you know, friend group? 
Uh, look, I mean, Cameo is a overnight success story four years in the making, right? So uh, it, it took a long time. I think it took us maybe six months to get the first 40 people on Cameo. So we started with our friends. We started building a product that we knew they liked. But um, I think a big turning point was us with, when we sold the first Cameo, we got a reaction video back. So the dad you know, sent, recorded his daughter and like showed that the girl was crying because she was so happy. And once we had that reaction video, it wasn't about like, hey, hey, Mr. You know, NFL player, you could come join this, you know, this marketplace for fans and talent, but you're the only player on it and there's no fans there. So like, don't you want to make people feel like this? And once we had the first reaction video, then you know the the narrative changed. And you know, we were very fortunate that there were uh, people out there that said yes to us when we didn't deserve them to say yes. And then you know, we've just continued to iterate on the product and add new people. And today, you know, we have 40,000 talent on Cameo. We have more talent than, you know, all of the big agencies combined. Tell us a little bit about the first days, you know, you had this idea, you tell your buddy, you, you know, you're at LinkedIn doing a horrible job because you're focused on Cameo. But when you finally leave, what's that like? I mean, was the feeling like this is going to be it? Or were you just nervous as hell thinking, damn, like maybe this might not work. Like my coworkers like this idea because they're my coworkers. I mean, like what, what was the thought process there? I had absolute conviction that this was going to work. It was just a question if I was going to do it or somebody else was. I saw this. I knew that this would have to exist. Um, there needed to be a way for talent to monetize on the internet. Direct-to-consumer monetization was still like really early for talent, but you know, because of the power law dynamics on platforms like YouTube, where the top you know, 3% of creators make 97% of all the ad revenue, or on Spotify, where the top 1% of musicians make 99% of the streaming revenue, it was inevitable that in a world where people are more famous than they were rich, people were going to need to find new ways to do it. And an ad-supported revenue model was not going to ultimately be the answer. So it was never about would this work. It was just like, was I going to be the person that did it? Um, you know, and, and, you know, partnered with uh, Martin and Devin, I think we had perfect founder market fit for this business. You know, how many like CTOs and heads of product were like Vine stars with a billion loops and, you know, how many people that were out there getting talent, like knew the movie industry and, you know, and that a fellow agent's great. But, you know, frankly, like if I was Jeff Weiner, I would have been too successful to start Cameo. If, if, if Devin was David Dobrik, you know, and had you know 30 million followers on YouTube, he would have been too busy to do cameo. If Martin was, you know, Drew Rosenhaus and was the biggest agent in the NFL, he would have been too busy to do cameo. So we got lucky that I think we all like were exposed and we had natural talent, but none of us had like hit a grand slam in our career yet. So in many ways, like our kind of, you know, somewhat our like lack of early success is what gave us like the drive and determination to, to go run through walls and to get through a couple of tough years. I mean, you know, I, for, for like entrepreneurs out there, um, I, I can, you know, if I go to Stripe and I look at, you know, what our revenue was in the first, you know, in the first like six months of Cameo, right? Like I left LinkedIn in, in January of uh, 2017, but, you know, we go back November 2016, $0, December 2016, $0, uh, February 2017, $129.95. And we have a 25% take rate. You know, we're now, I've now quit. I'm gone from LinkedIn for two months and we couldn't even buy lunch yet, you know? 
$450 in March of 2017, $900 in April of 2017, you know, 3,400 bucks in May of 2017. That's now seven months in, right? So even though it was slow, we knew we were delighting people and the feedback we were getting was great. Even though we weren't selling many cameos, people were like, this is the best thing I've ever bought. And then we just felt like if we could make one people, one person feel like that at scale, we could make millions and hopefully billions of people feel that way. I'm curious, what was your approach to like the pricing model? Because it's super interesting. Like, I mean, with any marketplace model, there's like a couple different ways you can go about it, right? There's a, just a standard set price, and then there's like a market driven, uh, you know, demand driven model, like an eBay. Or we had the founder of StockX on the show, so we were kind of talking about how their platform works. But um, you know, how because it's from what I've seen, and I could be wrong. It's like one flat rate, and it differs from you know talent. You know, one person to the other so how does that work like how do, how do you determine is it like a collaboration with that talent like how if their cameo one cameo is fifty dollars versus five hundred dollars how does that how does that work every talent sets their own price that's been you know foundational to our business model since the beginning um you know the options trader in me wanted to help people set a good price and always make sure that nobody could ever say this wasn't worth their time. Because if we set a price that wasn't, you know, if it, they felt it was too low and they said it wasn't worth their time, they weren't going to do it. On the flip side, if we set a price that was too high and nobody bought them, that wouldn't work either. So the the little Jedi mind trick that you know we created early was a pricing, a very you know, simplistic pricing algorithm we called earnings per minute. And I'll never forget when Andre Drummond, who was the first max salary NBA player for the Detroit Pistons at the time, joined Cameo. He's making $25 million a year. He's like, you know, I got offered forty grand to go to a bar mitzvah. I probably need to be ten grand or twenty grand to do this. And I said, Andre, take $25 million, divide by 2,000 hours in a work year, 50, 40-hour weeks, divide by 60, and you actually make $208 a minute. So on Cameo, if you charge 100 or 150 bucks. You could actually make more per minute because you could do two or three of these per minute than you could as a max salary NBA player. So suddenly, you know, for less than the cost of taking your kid to the basketball game, you could get his favorite player to speak to him. Like that was huge. And then then it became real estate, right? It became like Zillow. People would look at comps and they'd say, hey, like, here's this athlete that's on my team. I'm a better player than them. I should be more. Or here's a singer that is in a rival band. Like, I think we're pretty good comps. And, and ultimately, like, price has become uh, an arbiter of willingness. I always say, like, price isn't, you know, your time value. It's really, like, how willing are you, can, are you to do it? Because you need to, you need to find a price that your fans can afford. You know, it's funny you brought up Zillow because while you were talking about the whole pricing thing, I was thinking to myself, you know, why isn't there, like, a Zestimate? on you know cameo where you know if i have like you know 10 million followers or whatever and uh, somebody else has 9 million you know it prices it that way or you know the comps around my area my industry etc but that's very interesting and i think it's something that makes a lot of sense um, one thing that's interesting on that so i think another misconception is that fame on instagram or fame on youtube equals like make more money than anyone on cameo the best people on cameo are not equal to the most famous people we have on the platform they're the best people at Cameo, just like Snapchat, like DJ Khaled was like the biggest person on Snapchat, but he wasn't the biggest person on Instagram or the Kardashians are the biggest people on Instagram, but they're not the biggest people on Twitter. And Ashton Kutcher was huge on Twitter, but like, I don't think he's ever posted a Snapchat or Instagram, or at least I've never seen it. Right. So like different mediums are perfect for different people. And on Cameo, what we found is that 
what works really well is either being a viral sensation to someone like a Carol Baskins or the Tiger King cast, uh, being a comedian or being like an iconic actor from like a show that's just beloved, like someone like uh, Brian Baumgartner, who's Kevin from The Office. Like those have been like really where we found product market fit. So, you know, there's people that are way more famous than them, but, you know, they're not earning as much money as, as those people are. Right. But Stephen, and, and this could be biased or it could be an answer that is biased, but I'm going to ask it regardless. But don't you think that Cameo actually is a better indicator of somebody's fame because someone's actually paying for it? On Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat, I'm consuming and the world is consuming their content essentially for free, right? Like I'm not paying for that service. The companies are paying for me to pay that or use that service for free. As opposed to Cameo, where because it's not necessarily the ads that are supporting it and the consumers and customers are supporting it, they're actually having to pay for the content, right? Even though it's personal. So, I mean, if you could talk a little bit about that and how Cameo's network effect is different than or, you know, better than other platforms. So I think it starts with the value prop of Cameo. On Cameo, the town is getting paid to become more famous. I think that's really important. When you receive a cameo from somebody, you actually like them more than you liked them before, right? It's it's the the analog version of cameo is, hey, I ran it, I was on the streets of Chicago and I ran into Mark Wahlberg filming Transformers and like he was the nicest guy, right? And like if you have that experience, you're gonna go and tell everyone you've ever met, like, oh yeah, I, I met Wahlberg once, like guy was awesome, we talked for five minutes. On the flip side, if you meet somebody, you know, if you met Kobe Bryant and, you know, and, and he like totally ignored you, then you're like, Kobe's a dick, right? So it's like that those little moments that people have, like have such a huge uh, impact on, on, on how they are. So the thing that's cool is that every time you get a cameo from someone, it's not just you that becomes a bigger fan of them, but it's like anyone you share it with and they're all like, wow, I saw that, you know, I saw that cameo that that uh, XYZ person made for Posh, like that, you know, what a cool guy, like that guy's awesome. So, so I think that value prop of getting paid to become more famous is a really interesting, uh, you know, part of, of our business. Hmm. Um, I guess, so I'm sorry for like, we're grilling you here, but it's just like naturally curious. Um, you know, I remember like back, you know, when a lot of times we would see like these celebrities on Instagram, like, you know, do, they would do like these shout outs and people would put it, put it on their Instagram, like complex or one of these like, places would post it. Like, look at, you know, Kobe Bryant did a shout out for this kid who's in the hospital or whatever. And it was like super, you know, just natural, just happened on the spot. How do you like, how does that, since this is like a little bit more different where someone is paying for it and it's more like a transaction, how do you maintain that, that authenticity and that genuineness between the talent and the consumer? Well, number one, the talent was always doing this for a very tiny subset of people. It might be like, if you wanted to get to Kobe, like you needed to know his agent and maybe like, you know, if you knew his agent, you could get Kobe to do this shout out for your kid's bar mitzvah. But like, that's a tiny amount of people of all the people in the world that love Kobe. Most people are never going to meet him in real life. So to me, this is like, this is the equivalent of like in the music space, you know, you go to a concert, but like some people are going to pay to be front row and some people are going to pay to do the VIP meet and greet and take the picture with them in politics, right? Like a lot of people are going to vote for one politician or the other, but a subset of people pay money to go to the big dinner to take a picture with Barack Obama, right? That they're going to have, you know, in their office forever, right? So like there's been the offline, the analog versions of this has existed forever. And, and Cameo just by adding a pay gate, 
it's just enabled people that never had access before to have it. You mentioned uh, Jeff Weiner, who was the former CEO of LinkedIn, um, was an early investor. Did you meet him um, and develop a relationship with him while you were at LinkedIn, or was it a little bit after that? I didn't. I didn't know him at all. I mean, I watched him on all hands. Like, I learned. I, I, I learned a lot from him by osmosis. But uh, the the person at LinkedIn that you know I had met a couple times was Mike Gamson, who is number two at LinkedIn. Essentially, he ran all. If you weren't an engineer, like you reported to Mike Gamson. And, uh, you know, Gamson hit me up three months after I left LinkedIn um, because in my farewell letter, I wrote a story about Gamson. So on uh, my first day at LinkedIn, Gamson's sitting in Chicago. I'm in a new hire class with like, you know, probably about 100 people in Chicago. And then there's like 30, you know, Zoom screens around the world of like the different LinkedIn offices. And Gamson, the first thing he says to all of us on my first day at work, he goes, welcome to LinkedIn. Two years from today, none of you will be doing the job we just hired you for. We know that, we support that, and we literally have the profile data to prove it. Our job in the next two years is to make sure you get the skills you need to do your dream job. Your job is to do this job to the best of your abilities so you set yourself up to get the next job, whether it's internally or externally. And oh, by the way, when you're ready to leave, all we ask is you recruit someone better than yourself to take your place. Like that was LinkedIn culture. That was like mind blowing to me because when I was trading, if I had ever told my old bosses like, hey, like the corn pit isn't going well, like I want to go do like something else. Yeah, they'd be like, yeah, screw you, get out of here, right? Like, but at LinkedIn, the fact that you could have these career path conversations with your manager and and if you wanted to switch teams that you just talked about it. If you wanted to work at another company, you talked about it. That was a really cool part of the LinkedIn culture. And Gamson ended up, uh, you know, I wrote about that in my in my farewell letter because the day I left LinkedIn was my exact two year anniversary. So I talked about how in in my case the Gamson prophecy was true. And he emailed me. He's like, "That's awesome. Thank you for the kind words. If I could ever be helpful, let me know." Exactly three months later, the first day of Q two, he pinged me just to get an update. We had a phone conversation. Uh, he just totally loved the vision. We've maybe sold about. 30 of these cameos so far at the time. And Gamson, you know, was like, hey, I want to, I love this business. I want to, I want to put some money in it. And at the time we'd raised our friends and family. I told him we didn't need money. He's like, no, 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 Stephen, I, I love your business. I'm going to put some investment in it. And, you know, he led a $500,000 round on the spot and that changed everything. That enabled me to, to learn about, you know, to, to build this business in Chicago, my hometown, uh, it gave us, it gave me the confidence that, you know, someone like Gamson, you know, saw what I was up to and, and got it. And, and, you know, that started everything. So why do you think that was like, you, I guess, switching to the culture discussion now, like we mentioned earlier, you know, you, you talk about how at LinkedIn, they expect you to perhaps have a career change in two years or even whether it's internally or externally, um, why do you think that was? Why didn't they want people that were there longer? And is that something that you've applied to your own business? Well, they literally have the profile data to prove it, right? They have every resume on earth. So they know in real time when people are switching. And I remember like early somebody telling me that somebody in my generation will work for seven different companies in their life. So it's not that they didn't want you to do it. Of course, they want everybody to work there for 20 years and have like this storybook career. But they just like were able to be intellectually honest because they had the data that just said, hey, realistically, you're probably not going to be here. And Reed Hoffman uh, wrote his book called The Alliance, uh, which is all about, hey, as long as the companies, you know, uh, 
path is this way, your path is this way. Hey, let's, you know, let's make a great team. And then at some point, you know, they might diverge and, and, you know, hopefully we had a great experience on both sides. So, you know, that's a relationship forever. And um, I just think LinkedIn was just honest about something that every single company, you know, really has to face. I know with uh, COVID and everything that's been happening over the last uh, six months or so, like there's a lot of companies have had to pivot. I know you guys did, a, did a, you know, introduced new new uh, features and that kind of stuff too. So um, how do you see, you know, Cameo like sustaining as a business over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Is it, is it going to come with just like just what's what people want to consume and what people want from, you know, talent and that kind of stuff? Or is it? I don't know, like, how do you envision the platform changing, not changing? How do you go about that? Well, I think it starts with, um, you know, any enduring business that's going to last 10 to 15 years must have like a core business that's a cash cow that's working and continuing to grow. And then off of that, only when those unit economics are healthy, I think can you take other bets and, you know, look, we're at a business that's growing you know, 700% year over year from a year where we grew 1000% year over year. So the core business is working, you know, and it's working well. And, you know, one thing that's interesting is like all the talent that are on Cameo, there's a lot of other things that they do to monetize. Like they do meet and greets, they have concerts, they play games, there's all this type of stuff. So we always articulated Cameo is the marketplace where for X amount of money, you could do Y activity with Z person. Today, we're only doing one Y activity, essentially, which is the personalized video shout out with 40,000 Z people. We believe there's 5 million Z people out there. So we have like, you know, one third of 1% of the total addressable market on the talent side. And we believe that that's just going to continue to grow. On top of that, of the talent that we have, there's just more things that we can do with them. And since COVID started, we've launched two new products, uh, Cameo Direct, which is a product where you can text uh, with talent. So like the other day, I texted Chuck Norris to ask him a question and got an answer right back. And then Cameo Live, which is our, our product where you can Zoom chat with you know a talent as well. So like these are just two of the many, many, many things that we could build upon. But you know, for us, the most important thing is just continuing to acquire supply side and make uh, you know make it fun, make the talent love to do what we're doing and earn trust in the core product. And then if they, if we earn their trust by giving them a great experience on, on the core cameo shout out, then they're more likely to do other things with us in the future. How are you like as a leader? I mean, you know, you've experienced different levels of leadership. You were a leader in certain aspects of your life and career before cameo. Uh, but, but what are you like now, you know, with, with a company that's three, four years old and growing, um, you know, there are new challenges, there are new initiatives that you take on. Naturally, you probably have a lot more work that you have to do. Um, how do you manage all that? Uh, I, I saw a really good quote on Twitter from uh, Zach from Plaid uh, this week. I guess it was like two days ago. And it just really resonated with me. And he goes, and, and Plaid sold, you know, for like, I think, six and a half billion dollars earlier this year. Zach went to Duke with me. So I've been watching his story, you know, from the sidelines. But he goes, at a certain size, the job of a founder switches from building a product to building a company. It drove me crazy for a while not to be building a product directly until I realized that for a founder, the company is the product. And I think like that is so true. I hadn't articulated it like that. But, you know, today, like my job is not to be Michael Jordan. It's to be 
Jerry Krause or to be Phil Jackson, right? It's to assemble an all-star team that can go have it. You know, you have to have the vision and the mission and you have to make sure that people are pulling on the right on the right sides. But my job right now is like setting vision, it's setting culture, it's hiring, it's firing, it's it's you know recruiting great people, it's de- developing and, and training great and getting people out that shouldn't you know shouldn't be there or aren't you know going to be able to do it. So that's a really big shift. Like I'm not, I'm very rarely like calling talent anymore. Like I used to be customer service. I used to you know do all the marketing emails myself. Like. I ran our social media. I've done every job at Cameo, but like quickly, like I've been able to fire myself from, you know, everything that I don't think I'm world-class at, just focus on the things that I, I think I can be uniquely great at. How do you go about identifying the talent that you want on the platform? Because I can imagine as the role of celebrity or like the idea of celebrity changes and shifts, like you, you mentioned um, your co-founder, Devin, who was like a Vine star. Back then, no one was a Vine star. They were just on Vine. And now looking back, they were a star. Like they were the future filmmakers uh, yeah. and, you know, talent. And so um, how as that role shifts, um, as the celebrity landscape shifts, I mean, we'll always have the athletes and the actors and those people, but you know, these influencers and people that come in from different angles, like how do you, how do you identify and approach these people? The Vine stars, I mean, look, that was purely Devin. I remember one day uh, we had just, you know, I, I think any founder when they're starting, it's always like focus, 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 find one vertical, try to win that vertical. And Martin and I love sports. So like all we cared about were athletes and we were trying to create a platform where backup athletes could like make off the field income essentially, right? And and frankly, we never really found product market fit there. Like now they can get booked, but it wasn't until one day where Devin's like, hey, I think Cody, my roommate with 3.5 million followers on YouTube at the time, people like Cody might do well on Cameo. And it made sense, right? If you're a Vine star or you're a YouTuber, you're in the NBA or you're in the NFL for making video content. And that's what Cameo is. So to us, like it started with that. And then we stumbled upon some other verticals like reality TV. I remember we got Sonia Morgan on. It was our first real housewife. Then that became a thing and drag stars became a thing. And, and as we've come out, but now we've got a lot more sophisticated, um, you know, in the early days, it was like, Hey, we're going for sports. We need to make sure that there's one player from every team on, or one player from every city or what, you know, like we used to get requests. It's like, I want anyone from any athlete from Boston on Cameo, where now it's like very nuanced on who people are requesting. The other thing, too, is like we now have because of the network effect, there's so much search data. So people go in and they search for different people we have. And it's not, you know, it's not like The Rock and Taylor Swift and, you know, Justin Bieber are the only people. You know, when when all of a sudden we started seeing the name Jerry Harris pop up. It turned out that this guy was, you know, from a, a show Cheer on Netflix. You know, within a couple of days, we were able to get him on. And, you know, he made, you know, six figures in his first month on Cameo. Or, like, all of a sudden, the Tiger King became a thing. And we were able to really quickly go get those people on. So, for us, like, we've really found product market fit for people that are kind of early in their career, on the on the upswing, or people that were super famous, were the most famous people in the world. And are now, you know, not, you know, they're not, I wouldn't call them on the downswing, but they're just, they're not that person anymore. And they're more nostalgia. I mean, what more can Cameo do, right? Like, you know, I just think of this world that we're living in right now, like, you know, with coronavirus and a lot of, um, you know, events, a lot of the activities that we did, simple things like going to the gym, right? We can't do that. You know, going to the movies, you can't do that. You know, hanging out with a big group of friends, you can't do that. So 
how can Cameo with the talent solve those problems? Well, I think, you know, the answer is you, number one, uh, I think the hardest thing for during the pandemic is like, people are like upset, they're depressed, they're lonely, you know? So I think it starts with like, we put smiles on people's faces every day. And I think that's pretty damn important. Um, you know, I think companies get in trouble when they try to solve every problem in the world. And for us, like, you know, very narrowly, like we want to make people extremely happy when they get a cameo. You know, we call cameos internally magical moments. So right now, I think we just need to be in the business of creating as many magical moments as possible. And look, you know, I think when customers have a magical moment for, with us, you know, for one thing, then they're that much more likely to try the next thing that we roll out. And and on the talent side, if, you know, we've become the place where they're having that super positive experience because of the paywall, like people don't get like trolled on Cameo. You're not going to pay like, you know, $250 to tell someone they suck. You know what you can do for free on Instagram or Twitter. So like, as as we keep as we keep layering these like great delightful experiences on both sides, as we have ideas like we did with Cameo Live or with Cameo Direct, then you know we roll those out and we let people try that. And we, if there's product market fit, we roll it out deeper. That would be pretty funny. Is like finding someone that is like known as, known to be like a super nice dude or like a nice nice girl and just like have them just berate the other person. <laughs> I mean, uh, hey, you know, like especially with these elections coming up, you know, if you can get Biden and Harris and uh, Trump and Pence on there, and you know, people from the opposite party have to pay and they complain to them, it could be a donation to their campaign or something. Like, yeah, talk we're, about we're a working, opportunity there. We're working on that stuff right now. Yeah. Uh, we've had candidates of both parties uh, come to us because think about all those big ticket fundraisers that are gone, right? The right. John Legend, you know, ten thousand dollar you know, I'll play piano for Barack Obama type events, right? Like those aren't happening today. And that's a lot of money missing. And, you know, especially celebrities there, you know, on both sides of the aisle have been, you know, forever kind of used the, as fundraising. So we've had uh, people on both sides of the aisle come to us and say, hey, how can we use Cameo to raise money and to replace some of this kind of lost fundraising revenue that we would have got from those type of events? You know, one thing I think about is, Instagram, you know, encouraged all these people to become influencers, right? And YouTube encouraged all these people to become YouTubers and sing and, you know, Twitch with gamers. You know, what is an opportunity for Cameo? Is it is it the idea that you can become a celebrity and you can create an audience that will pay you for your content or just to simply even talk to you, right? Is there that sort of opportunity for people to start make people like me, regular people like me and Pat, right? to make money without having to be an A-lister or a bench player on the you know Los Angeles Lakers, right? I'm curious if that's an opportunity for people to really develop a true career. Look, I think you're getting paid to become more famous, right? So that's, that's our big value prop. But I would say that, like, look, TikTok and Instagram and SoundCloud, there's other platforms today that are better to, like, blow up on. I look at the other platforms as the farm system for Cameo, right? So like this week and last couple of weeks, people have been asking, hey, are you happy that TikTok is going to get banned or, you know, Microsoft buys them, whatever is going to happen? Like, no, like TikTok is creating more creators who need to come to Cameo because they're not able to monetize on TikTok, right? So the, the pure supply at any of the platforms, they're creating more famous people who overwhelmingly, because of those business models, aren't making money. So they come to Cameo to basically, you know, be their monetization engine. So the more 
people blow up on other platforms and they come to Cameo to cash it in. I'm curious with your like experience, whether it's just kind of knowledge of sports and, and kind of being in that space or like filmmaking and that kind of stuff, producing, maybe maybe some something else. Um, what do you see or what are you most excited about in the next like five to 10 years post COVID-19? What's something that you've been thinking about where you're like, I'm, I'm excited to see this happen? Uh, like in, in entertainment and sports, like where, like give me an example. It could be anything, just kind of where the future is headed in any of these like spaces that you're particularly interested in or like consume often. I mean, I think gaming is just going to continue to get bigger and bigger. Esports, like I think is, you know, now it's like for a while it was like a, a, a secret. And then, you know, all of a sudden now it's like hotter than hell because Twitch has blown up so much since the pandemic. But I think esports is just going to continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, you know, I'm, I'm excited uh, for things like little Michaela, you know, who's like this influencer that's like not a real person. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, I think companies are going to create like, um, there's another one called Crypt TV that's making like, you know, the next generation of like horror characters. I think like getting into characters and intellectual property uh, behind them is going to be, you know, really important going forward. And I think the technology's picking up where like, you could have someone like Lil Michaela, who isn't a real person, be like the star of a movie one day. And like as a company, if you created that asset, you know, you don't have to pay the actor. Like CAA signed, you know, Lil Michaela, I think. And and that, you know, to me was like really, really interesting. Um, so I, I just think I think you're going to see um, sports get like a lot more interactive. Um, I just invest in a company called Streamlayer that basically is like, well, what would you know, what should watching sports look like in 2020, right? Because it's kind of looked the same, you know, for at least as long as I can remember. Like, you know, you've got the bar on the bottom and the stat, you know, stat tracker. But, like, you know, people want to have conversations with other, you know, fans. They want to, you know, know how their sports bets are doing. They want to see how their fantasy players are going. So, you know, Streamlayer wants to build uh, just like a, a skin on top of the broadcast that's like having all that interactive things that you want to do. But, you know, normally you'd have to like flip on, you know, turn your computer on or get in your iPad and not watch the game. But, like, how do you have all that information right there? So those are things I'm, I'm excited about in sports and entertainment. I also think the other thing is with movies, um, you know, in a world where like people decide not to go back to movie theaters, you know, what is going to happen? Like, you know, on the OTT space that allows, you know, kind of direct to consumer uh, you know, modernization for movies. So the, the studios themselves are going to be distributing, you know, movies and, you know, Disney has done some interesting things since the pandemic uh, with some of the movies, but I think that's, that's, you know, here to stay. And I wouldn't want to be owning movie theaters right now. You know, Steven, and these could perhaps be, you know, your final thoughts on, on today's podcast, but you know, you, you talked about early on how the idea for Canyon came about or what kind of sparked that, right? It was that text from the friend, the football player, to the, 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 to the, to the new father. Um, for those that are listening, and you know, we like to call them entrepreneurs or future entrepreneurs or whatever, um, you know, how can they identify ideas that could turn into businesses in their daily lives? Because what happened to you wasn't like unordinary. Like, I mean, you know, sure, you were able to identify it, but there's probably hundreds of things that happen throughout our lives, thousands, millions, that can be potential business ideas, right? Yeah. How does one put themselves, whether it's in that mindset or how do they even recognize 
what can be a business? I think um, there's a good framework that the Japanese have called Ikigai that I think does a good job of helping you understand like what are those opportunities you should go for. And imagine a Venn diagram, but instead of with two circles, with four, right? So, and it's the intersection point of what do you love to do? What are you great at? What does the world need? And what can you get paid to, to sell essentially, right? And you have to find something at the intersection of those points. Um, if you're great at something, you love to do it, the world needs it, but they won't pay for it, you're just going to be a missionary. You're never going to have a real business. On the flip side, if you're doing something that you know that you're that the world will pay for, that the world needs, that um, you're great at doing, but you don't love, then you're a mercenary. And I think you have to be a missionary versus a mercenary to work in an entrepreneur entrepreneurial setting. Like it might take years and years and years before you can pay yourself, and you're going to have to you know give you know forego a lot of income and go to your friends and family and ask them for money and you're probably going to like lose their money you know, like right. the first few times right. you try to do stuff. But like my advice would be like, if it's in an area that you would do for free, like then you should, if it's an area that like whatever job you're doing, right. If you're daydreaming about something else, just like find something in the area that you find play and make that your work. And I think, right. um, I think, I think that's probably the best, you know, the best advice normally for other audiences, I'll tell people, you know, unless they, have absolute conviction that like they couldn't live with themselves unless somebody, unless they won, I would tell them not to do it. But for the entrepreneurs, like shit, like if you got an idea, like just go for it. Like who gives a shit? Like all you're giving up is whatever money you put in and, and some time, but like, you're going to, you know, take some reps, swing and miss and like, and, and just keep iterating. That's what I would do. You know, yeah. it's funny. You're probably the fifth or sixth person on the show who's mentioned the term Ikigai. So perhaps we have to call, and we've written an article on it. We've we both read it. So perhaps we got to, you know, write a new book or maybe start a new podcast called Finding Ikigai or something. Uh, because yeah. that seems to be, you know, when people ask us, you know, what's the similarity of all these founders, 150 plus founders that we've interviewed at this point? You know, it's it's literally those four things. You know, you and several others were able to identify it as Ikigai. But at the end of the day, you know, making money is a big part of it. The world needing it and solving a problem is a big part of it. But I think most importantly, it's like, do you enjoy doing it? Do you want to wake up every single morning excited for something that could be the most mundane task? Like, I don't know, answering an email or, you know, writing some notes down or whatever it may be, right? It's not fun every day, but are you excited to wake up and make sure that that boring task at the end of the day is still going to be fun for you, right? And I think yeah. that you've clearly found that and you know, several of the people that we've interviewed have found that. And I, I, I heard, I heard it's funny. I was interviewing a CFO candidate this week and she told me, uh, she gave me one other framework that I thought was really interesting. And she said that somebody told her a long time ago that the surest way to make a fortune in your life is to take, is to, to work with four other super talented people. So have five super talented people stick together for five years working together. And, you know, it's like, most startups die from suicide, not by homicide. I'm blessed to have co-founders that, you know, I think like we really complement each other well. And then, you know, there's a couple early employees like, you know, Arthur, who's employee number one or COO, who's just like, you know, we look at him as a co-founder, right? And, and I think, you know, the fact is like, we're now in year three, almost year four of that. And, and I think it's totally true. Find, you know, find a group of five people that you want to work with for five years and just stick together. And, and I think good things that happen when you do that. Love it. 
Love it. Thank you so much for your time, Stephen. Uh, you know, we love seeing what Cameo has done, especially during these last six months of COVID. We would have never seen this coming, obviously. But, you know, it's great to see companies and entrepreneurs like yourself that have gone above and beyond what they're, you know, what they were doing to really improve the lives of others and bring joy in people's lives. And at the end of the day, that's, I think, something that everybody will remember once this is all said and done is the joy that you brought them, the way that you made them feel. And I think that, you know, Cameo is definitely a platform that does that. Uh, and I think that's a massive lesson for people to take away is that if anything you do in life, whether it's your life, your business and relationships, if you make other people happy, that is a huge win. And that's just going to lead to more wins. So thank you for your time, for your advice, for your wisdom. And, you know, hopefully we can keep in touch and hopefully we can meet in person one day as well. Great. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Stephen.